Hello, you're listening to Shut Up and Watch This, episode number 60. Can you believe we've done 60 of these? 60. We haven't. I guess we're on... Is that we, the we're golden in between. podcast episode is 60? <laughs> Nevertheless, we're a couple in Austin, Texas, getting to know each other better by uncovering... No, that's not right. By... What was it we're doing? By sharing the must-see movies and guilty pleasures from our past, mm-hmm. but like the media and film and sometimes television pleasures. But this time it's just film. Yes. <laughs> Mostly. It's we only film. make this show. We don't know what it's about. Yeah. Um, <laughs> each time one of us chooses something and controls the viewing experience, like not actually the viewing experience. I think I did turn out the lights. You did. Yeah. It was Ashley's choice, not Dave's choice. That's right. We didn't watch Sophie's choice. <laughs> I've never seen it. So. I've never seen it either. I only know what Sophie's choice was. Yes. Well, I know what the choice was. I don't know what her decision was. I only was. know it because I looked it up on Wikipedia. Okay, so. that's fine. We're not going to spoil <laughs> that movie. We're only going to spoil this week's movie. Which was, Ashley's choice was? I chose uh, 1997 uh, Wings of the Dove with Helena Bonham Carter and Allison Elliott and Linus Roach. Yes. And directed by Ian Softley, Good. who I've not... Um, I, I just looked up what his uh, other movies that he directed are. As did I. Yes. <laughs> he did Backbeat. I, you know, I, he did I, Hackers. He, he did, did hackers. K-Packs. I hadn't seen Hackers. K-Packs, yes. Backbeat, well, I think might have been his first film, was about <laughs> Stuart Sutcliffe, the Beatle that didn't end up staying in the Beatles. The first oh, okay. drummer. Fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> We're not reviewing that. I haven't seen it. I'm aware of it, though. All right. All right, so this is the point at which I... Well, I'll just... Yes. Why did you choose so The Wings of the Dove? I chose Wings of the Dove, which I guess you had seen, so it, it breaks the original rules, but not the new rules. Um, the new rules are there are no rules. So this is one of those movies that I watch like over and over and over and over again. Um, I guess it came out in 97, so I would have been 16. I probably did not see this in the theater, probably rented it from... Uh, as my family call it, Video Gigante or um, Video Giant <laughs> was the... Uh, this, this store has been mentioned on this show several times yes, in our 60 episodes. The small... Um, well, it wasn't small. They moved into like an old... Um, laundromat. Like, not laundromat. Just, no, it's big. I'm just um, filling in sentences with random Like a words. true value hardware store or something like that. Oh, so that is kinda, Gigante. It was pretty giant. Um, they had like a play place for kids. Anyway... Um, so I am a professed fan of like all, or I used to be, not as much anymore, of British period film, period dramas, and I would watch that like all the time. Yeah. That was like what I did. But it was your jam. I loved this one in particular. So like this is the first like, you know, to use the word the kids are using today, first aesthetic that I fell in love with. So this is set in 1910, which is a little, actually a little bit later than the novel Wings of the Dove by Henry James. Um, but they moved it up to sort of explore some, some sort of like the beginning of a new century and sort of some themes related to that. Um, but they chose to go to 1910, um, and it has this really like Art Nouveau feel to it. And it's, I mean, like I didn't really know about fashion or anything when I was 15 or 16 so but like I just fell in love with this and it it sort of coincided with the like late 90s kind of um bohemian sort of fashion sort they were kind of picking up cues from like the from the hippie 60s but there was also some like bohemian stuff so I remember I had an outfit that I wore that was like purple velvet like a, a tunic that I wore with like black sort of leggings. a Jimi Hendrix kind of look. Yeah, 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 exactly. I, <laughs> I didn't have uh, lace on the okay. sleeves, but um, um, I just loved uh, the fashion and the style of this. And then another thing that I love in my drama is like jealousy and love triangles and and all that sort of thing. And I just I love like bad consequences for decisions and like I don't know. It's it just is like right up my alley as far as like theme goes and the fantastic fashion. And then, you know, Helena Bonham Carter is amazing. You know, um, it was before she got like pulled into the Burton hemisphere, you know. We can talk uh, about that yeah. at some point. <laughs> I think we have talked about that at some point. But not but as it relates to Helena Bonham Carter. That's right. That's right. Um, 
I mean, but they were married for 20 years or some odd, something like that. So, um, but I just, I just loved it. And I just, I, I think it's, it's like a great film. It was fun to watch it again after I haven't seen it in probably 12 years or something like that. So, but it was one that I just like when it was 23 years. Yeah. That's the last time I saw this movie, 1997 when it came out. Oh, wow. So yeah, you saw it in the theater? Or? I saw it in the theater in New York. Don't ask me which theater. I don't remember. But, um, okay. <laughs> yeah, it was a great film. I really liked it at the time. I saw it in the theater, but I didn't remember it at all. Yeah. I remembered something about the feeling of it. I remembered Helena Bonham Carter, but I wouldn't have been able to call up even an image in my mind of Linus Roach or uh, Alison Elliott. I just didn't remember what anybody else like. Like she was the overriding, yeah, yeah, image person association that I had with this movie. So it was to be dramatic, kind of a revelation to see it again after so yeah. long, and to and to realize what an amazing film it is how yeah. beautiful a film it is i don't even know if i mean i was an adult but i don't think i think my being with you has improved my ability to see and understand things like production design and costuming and furniture and color in a way that i probably wasn't even as attuned to you, yeah yeah your aesthetics <laughs> I, i've learned about your aesthetics and about the world of design and aesthetics so it was fun to see it with you last, was it last night or the night before? It was two nights ago. Yeah. And it was funny because I was watching it with you and you were reacting like audibly, yeah. not to like what's going on in the screen, the drama between the characters, yeah. but you would like, like catch your breath when a new image came up of like a, a blue shaded parlor or something yeah. like that, or some particular silky, colorful, draped costume or hat or, you know, some, one of those, just the design and the look of it. You, and I was like, wait, does she like this movie for the story or, or for, for the, the, the aesthetics? And, and it sounds like both. Well, but. both, but I mean, like as far as, you know, as a, as a connoisseur of British period drama, it's pretty rote. As far as, you know, it's pretty, you know, it's, the story is, is fine. It's not, there's nothing any particularly striking about it. It's a pretty standard drama kind of thing. You know, it's... Henry James is just pretty standard. Yeah. Well, I mean, and like I read elsewhere, like reviews of this and they were like, you know, there are other novels that were more important than Wings of the Dove. It's one of the lesser James novels although apparently like lots of people felt this was the most successful adaptation mm -hmm. of a james at the time um but you know you know some of it is you know i think it it has depth in the way that the actors play it but the story itself doesn't have a lot of depth it's pretty well it is all know. in the, <laughs> that interrelationship the love i don't know yeah we've seen a million things with love triangles so yeah there's not a lot, there's not a lot, there are no surprises. Yeah. There's not a lot of suspense in terms of like what's going to happen, which is interesting because you feel throughout the movie, this overwhelming sense of like, this is all terrible. It's all, this is all going to go wrong. <laughs> it's not going to go <laughs> this well. This is not going <laughs> to, these things never go well. Um, but I guess we should fill in a little bit about the general plot, you know, and yeah. the characters who we're dealing with, these these three. Let's talk about them. Okay, and so we have our lead, uh, Kate, who is played by Helena Bonham Carter, and she comes from an aristocratic family that's sort of fallen on hard times. I get the idea that... I'm not sure if it's her mother or her father who were... who carries the aristocratic family, but anyway, they were... they ended up penniless... Um, so after Kate's mother died, her aunt, uh, Aunt Maud, who is wealthy. So I, I guess that means I think that, she's the mother's sister. Is yeah. What I would, so, she, she doesn't seem to really want to have anything to do with her father. No, that's so right. I don't think that's her brother. So she, you know, petitioned to be Kate's ward or for Kate to be her ward. Mm -hmm. Um, so Kate is taken into the lap of luxury at her aunt's house her dad is sort of left where he is, but he gets a few shillings a week from her aunt. 
Um, Pretty much to stay out of their way. Yeah, essentially, just to not get in the way. So he he's a, he's an opium addict, so he kind of is half in, half out. Played by the great <laughs> Michael Gambon. Yes, of so the good. Of the thief, his wife and her lover. <laughs> And Charlotte Rampling as as the aunt. Oh, and Charlotte. She's, she's amazing. A, majestic and amazing. And if you haven't seen, what is the film? 25 years? How many years? I think so. 25 years. 25 years? Is that what 24 it's years? I don't know. 20. <laughs> the Andrew Haig film that came yes. out a few years yes. ago. Yes. The director of Weekend. So good. Which is so good. Um, both were very good. But um, so Kate has from her past life. Um, 42 a, years? <laughs> Sorry, I don't remember anymore. Um, that's a different movie. Uh, <laughs> okay, focus. Uh, Love triangle. So she, Kate, has a lover that she had from her past, who's a journalist. He's a commoner. Um, he's not wealthy. He just like he rents a small flat in London, but she's absolutely smitten with him, and she meets him on the sly. Um, you know, defying her aunt's disapproval. Actually, not really defying it, just kind of hiding from it. Um, but at some point, her aunt says, you can't see him anymore, or I'm going to take away all the money from your father, essentially. You're not inheriting anything, yeah. and he's going to be penniless. Yeah, essentially. So she has to drop her guy that she loves and who wants to marry her. The love her. of her life. Yeah. So three months later... She's at a party, and she meets an American heiress named Millie, mm-hmm. um, who... Uh, Allison Elliott. Who's an orphan, so it's just her, and her friend who travels with her, Susan, who is Elizabeth McGovern. Yeah, um, it's like a Downton Abbey uh, yeah. the early days. I, well, I had to look it up. Is this Julian Fellows related? It's not Julian... Julian Fellows, yes? Yes, yes. but not. Yeah. That's the uh, correct not name. Not related. Not, not involved <laughs> with this. Uh, I just assume anything Elizabeth McGovern is in is Julian Fellows. Um, so she becomes really good friends with Millie at this same party. Um, her lover, um, who I've forgotten his name now. Merton. Merton. Merton Denture. Weird name. Um, that's why I forgot. Merton shows up at the same party. He gets invited by sort of like flirting with an older woman that was invited to the same party. Him and Kate talk, and they make up, and she resumes seeing him on the sly. Um, meanwhile, she finds out that Millie, after they become really good friends, Millie is ill. She has some sort of illness. We're not sure. They treat it with radiology in the film, so we don't know if it's cancer. Terminally ill, though, is the word on the street. Yeah. Yeah. She's she's going to die at some point. And she's loaded. Yes, and she's loaded. So, um, in the meantime, you know, because Kate and... Millie spends so much time together, they run into to Merton or vice versa some somehow. And it turns out Millie is really likes Merton. And Smirt- s- Oh, I thought you s- said smitten, but Smirt- wrong. Smitten. She's smitten. I didn't mean to say that. <laughs> <laughs> so she cracks this plan, although it's not obvious that that what she wants. It starts to become obvious that that's what she wants. It's never actually said until actually quite late in the film that that's what she wants. But she starts finding excuses for Merton and Millie to be together. And then um, um, when Millie invites Kate to go with her to Venice, Kate convinces Merton to come with them um, so she can encourage their relationship. And then, um, you know, chaos ensues. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> the rest of the film happens. Because if Millie dies, <laughs> then she'll leave the money to Merton, and then uh, Kate and Merton can be happy, happily mm-hmm. ever after without living under the conditions of uh, Aunt Maud, whatever her name yeah. is, having all the money they would need and being able to live together regardless of what anybody's status is in independence. Although, interestingly, so when... It doesn't go very well. No, it doesn't go very well. What what I did, I picked up this time, which I didn't ever pick up before, but right... So Aunt Maud is not happy that Kate is going off with Millie to Venice. No. And so I think she, like, is not funding that trip at all. Like, she tries to give convince Kate not to go, Um and then there's a scene where Kate takes a piece of expensive jewelry that her aunt gave her and drops it off with her father before she goes to Venice. So I think that her aunt is like, if you go to Venice, I'm not going to pay for your dad anymore. So she left him this 
this jewelry in order to fund his... I didn't get that at all. I don't know. It just seems like there's like a scene where she's like no, I, not I very happy about Kate going about. to going um, away. Yeah. But when she but comes she back from Venice. she hasn't been written yeah. off completely. That's true. Because her aunt, meanwhile, is trying to hook her up with um, Lord Mark. Yes. Who is uh, an aristocrat and a landowner, mm-hmm. has his estates, has his status, but he's like totally penniless. And <laughs> I mean, not penniless, but yeah. he will lose his estates if he doesn't come up with a method to fund that. So the other weird factor yeah. is that Lord Mark loves Kate and Aunt Maud is pushing him towards yeah. Kate and pushing Kate on him. But he he also wants to marry Millie, yeah. the American heiress, <laughs> for her money. And there's yeah. that scene then where he's drunk in the middle of the night and he comes into um, Kate's bedroom and is like, you know, it's you. You're the only one who matters. But I can't be. I have to marry for money. her yeah. or I will lose all of this. You know, it's interesting. I just read up on the sort of British like inheritance rules and all of that kind of thing. We've been thinking about this a lot yeah, because you and I have been rereading uh, Jane Austen novels, yeah. which is all about this stuff as well. Exactly. Well, you know, I read about it and apparently because of the way that the laws were written, like you had a choice. You could like entail your whole estate, all of it, in a way that it only goes to the next male heir. Or you can sort of like sub- Divide. I mean, like, still the majority of the estate has to go to the next male heir, but you can sort of subdivide the estate to support your other children. Um, but, like, if you do too much of that, like, all the money is entailed away from the estate, and all that's left is the land, and there's no, there's no money left to support the estate, and then, like, it goes into disrepair, and, like, they have no way to... You have been doing your research. Yeah, they have no way to make money off the estate anymore. Um, there was a lot of sort of um, investing in these overseas investments that, like, didn't always go well. Like, the ship would wreck or, you know, somebody wouldn't give their money back or, you know, all this kind of things that could happen. Um I think in Mansfield Park, like, the father character spends most of the book away because he had to go deal with In his, Antigua. Yeah, he had to go deal with his investments in the Caribbean um, because he didn't want to be cheated out yeah, of his money. Yeah, he for, like, a year or two. <laughs> it's, like, two years, yeah. yeah. Um, so, I mean, like, that's, like, kind of the state a lot of the British aristocracy was in in that sort of time period. I mean, I think they cover some of that in Downton Abbey, too. Um, so... It's funny, you kind of just absorb this sort of stuff by, like, if you if you watch enough British period pieces, it just kind of becomes part of your um, lexicon or whatever. <laughs> Instead of having to live as a British person in the class system with all of this as your history and background. But, you know, it's never a good idea, if you love someone, to try to convince them to seduce somebody else. It's just okay. not a good idea. For I see it. this as a theme on Shut Up and Watch This, because yeah. <laughs> as you said when we covered the film, this is this co- connects to Days of Heaven. It does. This is a reverse Days of Heaven. Mm-hmm. Because it's, okay, this is Days of Heaven with Helena Bonham Carter as Sam Shepard. That's right. No. No, no, no. With Alice Millie, El- Alice and Elliot is Sam Shepard. Richard Gere is Helena Bonham Carter. Yeah. And Brooke Adams yes. is Linus Roach. That's right. Think about that one for a while. I've, I will think about that. <laughs> so I think that uh, this is probably one of the most common stories there is. Yeah. But it's so well done. Um, in my head, I had sort of lumped this together with like the Merchant Ivory kind of yeah, yeah. period piece. They well, were some well, of the originals. You know, Bottom like, Carter was in Room with a View. That was her first film. I saw Which that. is also in Venice, right? Um, Florence, it, it, I think. Oh, Florence. Okay. That one's Florence. Yeah. It opens with them opening the windows <laughs> on right. that on the piazza or whatever. <laughs> Maggie Smith. Great yes. film. That was her first movie. She was so young. I saw that in the theater, too, mm. when I was a teenager. And thought she was beautiful and amazing and all that. And she is and was. Um, but, so, what I was saying is I lumped this in as kind of that like oh standard merchant ivory sort of period piece of an E.M. Forrester Henry James kind of thing. So I was actually really amazed at what a beautiful film it was mm-hmm. and how, how filmic it was. How like how much care was taken in the the 
the color and the costuming and the production design in and it was not like oh we're just novelizing something for BBC yeah. television and putting characters in the corner of a room it was so beautifully executed yeah so much atmosphere so much mood conveyed in shadow and rain and all, the movie is blue in my mind. It's yeah. like deep, dark blues. Mm. At least, maybe not the Venice parts, but no, that, Venice that is... early section yeah. in tube stations and uh, uh, all throughout London, all of that. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I just wanted to say I thought it was it was a much better film than I remembered it being. Yeah, it's... <laughs> so, like, one of the things that I didn't remember but like now I guess being more familiar with art in general than I was when I was 15 years old um the um you know there's so many shots that look like paintings like Rembrandt or Klimt or you know just I remember saying like somebody walked in I was like (laughs) she looks like a Klimt painting Mm -hmm. and then later on they're in a gallery looking at a Klimt Klimt painting and I was like that's not an accident yeah (laughs) They did that. They're going for that. Well, I mean, like, in a, and the the painting that they look at in the gallery is of a woman, a naked woman curled up. And, like, Helena Bonham Carter has a similar, I mean, is the naked woman at the end of the movie yeah, curled up curled like up. that on the dark background. It's like the uh, story of that painting yes. almost that we get. <laughs> it's true. Um, but I did, like, I did, I just went, right before we started, I went yeah, what were you through. Doing? I was writing down, so... One of my favorite fashion bloggers, Tom and Lorenzo, they do these, like, costume analyses, like, scene by scene. Did they ever cover this movie? Not that I saw. I looked. I looked. Um, but they do a lot of period pieces and comment on, mm-hmm. um, like, my favorite series that they did is they did a costume commentary on Mad Men, which is incredible, looking at characters. And because that... Um, show in particular uses costumes to convey information about character um, in a way that that not many films do. Um, but they've, they've done, they did Downton Abbey as well, you know, discussing mm-hmm. the, the Downton Abbey. Um, so they do, in addition to reviews of the actual content of a, a thing, they do like costume analysis, which I think is fascinating. I know so, nothing about the world of costume analysis. So I was trying to sort of gather... You know, whether the costumer was communicating in a similar way. And I think it's not as direct as it is in Mad Men. Mad Men is very specific as far as what they're trying to convey about the characters with the costumes. But, like, I did notice some things. So, like, Kate always wears blue and black. Except for one scene where she's writing the letter to... When she's back in London and they're in Venice by themselves, she writes this letter saying, you know, please still love me, essentially, is what she's saying. And in that, she's wearing red. Every other... Passion. Yeah, every other thing, she's wearing blue or black. Those are her colors throughout the whole... That's the color I see when I close my eyes and think about this movie. There's that great dress she wears to the party where they get back together Mm -hmm. um, with the the broken straps where her shoulders are... and But, like, it's interesting because, like, in the rest of the scene, she's wearing, like, a black velvet cape over it with a peacock on the back. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, it's gorgeous. That's probably one of the moments where you were like ooing and ahhing. <laughs> oh, oh, well, and she has that nightgown that's like the textured velvet that's absolutely beautiful. I don't know if they would be able to texture velvet like that back then. It looks like a laser process to me, but I don't know. It was absolutely gorgeous. Um, you know, turn of the century laser yeah, processing. That's right. Um, and Millie almost always is wearing green or white, except when she's in Venice alone with um, with Merton, Merton, and she wears a lot more warm colors, like coppers and purple and gold. Um, so those, like, it's a very striking, like, and I, I think I read about this, there was, like, a difference in the costumes between those in London, which are more structured, um, more sort of, like, high fashion of the times. And Venice was more Mediterranean and Mediterranean, North North African, North African mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, and and like in typical male fashion, I don't know if it's because he's in between them or just because male fashion is such that you wear brown and gray. You know, but he That's what just you wear if you're a he British wears man brown and gray in any era. <laughs> um, you know, the only time that he's not in a tweed suit 
is the very last scene where he's wearing a gray sweater and you get the sense that he's like soft and broken and you know destroyed Wait, a little which bit scene? When the he very comes last back to scene Venice? yeah okay. where he comes no where he comes back in his apartment with okay. Kate he's wearing a gray wool sweater um, as opposed to the structured sort of menswear pieces he's yeah. worn throughout the rest of the film he looks more like sort of like a fisherman or or something like that like it's un- it was unusual because you're used to seeing him in the like three piece tweed suits you know with the tie and mm-hmm. and all of that so um but you know I tried to find some sort of theme like she always wears blue when she's with um, but the only time I saw like sort of a connection between the characters as far as their costume is that when Millie and Kate are together, they're either wearing, when they first meet, Kate is wearing black and Millie's wearing white. Mm-hmm. And I think in their last scene together, it's the same thing. She's wearing, yeah, it is because black and white she's again. wearing black and, and Millie's wearing white. Um, but the rest of the time when they're together, Kate is in blue. She's always in blue, but um, Millie is in green, which like are complementary colors. So they like go together, but they're different, you know, and I don't think it's very often that they're in the same scene together that they aren't wearing their sort of either the black or whiter. But I don't know if that was what they meant to communicate, but it suggests to me that, you know, they're either opposing each other or they're complementing each other at, at different times, which is fits with the theme of the story, at least. So, Let's talk about them and their relationship. <laughs> yeah. How, what is, how does Kate, Helena Bonham Carter, feel about Millie? Is that a genuine friendship? I think so. Initially? Yeah. Do, 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 does she love her as a friend, but this need to be with Merton trumps all so to speak overpowers everything well to me i mean like i think there's three people that kate cares about in the world and it's her father merton and millie i think those are the only people that she cares about she probably doesn't think she's doing harm to kate by letting her have merton yeah i think she for a time something that she i mean it's almost it's in that way of looking at it's almost like a gift yeah yeah it's not a selfless gift because she stands to win in the end if they do fall in love and Millie leaves her money to him. Yeah. It's almost like I give him to you for now. Yeah. (laughs) I think that whatever, I don't know, somehow over the years, like in my mind, I thought of her as a much harder character than I experienced Mm. the film last night. Yeah. I like, she's not, She's not like an anti-hero or she's not like, I understand her. I understand why her motivation and what she's doing. But I think that I saw her as a colder, more conniving person, at least in my memory from having seen it the time before. I agree. I agree. And this time I saw it and I actually sympathized with her a lot more. And understood, maybe because now I know more about British land property (laughs) rules and all that, that I understand why she was doing what she was doing. And I can also see the sort of ethical thing she's doing with weighing, like, the harm of, like, connecting them for this thing that will end up benefiting her later. And does it actually harm her friend to let her love Merton for a short period of time? You know, but of course, yes, it's disingenuous and it's a weird scheme and all of that. Yeah, I don't know. What are your feelings about her? So, I mean, I've always been, you know, I don't know if it's this like blonde versus brunette thing they set up with women when we're like four or whatever, but... um, Teams, you have to choose. but But like, I've always been team Kate. I mean, like, I just, but like, I agree that that before I didn't care if she was bad, I just was on her side. But now, like... To me, like, I think that it's... The problem is not her. I mean, like, she's weighing, like, her future safety and her future health and her future happiness. Because she's got on one side, her dad is saying, look at... You could end up like me. You could end up like a poor opium addict. Dependent on, you know, people to throw change at you, essentially. I really like that the film gives us that as... This is the future she's looking at. If she doesn't do something to secure yeah. a place for herself. Yeah. 
her father in an opium den, den penniless. Yeah, essentially. And dependent on relatives in order to support her. And, and like, you know, if she steps wrong, then she's not going to even have that, you know. Um, and I think that, you know, as a man in the world that Merton feels like, he feels like cheated that she can't just love him freely, that she's care. I mean, like what he wants is for her to throw caution to the wind and just marry him. But like, screw your aunt, just marry me tomorrow. Yeah. I mean, but like, he's not taking into account what a big decision that is, not just for her, but also for her father who wouldn't even have the support that he has now, you know, the minuscule amount of support that she had. They wouldn't be in any position yeah. together living in a hovel on yeah. a journalist's salary well, and to then he, do anything for he him. He falls for Millie, who's able to love freely, but she has all the money in the world. She can give her heart as freely as she wants to because she doesn't have any responsibility. She doesn't even have to be responsible for herself beyond the end of, you know, her life is coming to an end. Mm-hmm. She can give, she can love how she wants, she can do what she wants, she can be as free and giving and open as anybody would want to be because she doesn't have those restrictions. And she's so open in demonstrating yeah. her interest in yeah. Merton. Like, she really has nothing to lose. Yeah. And I think they're also probably also doing an American versus British openness kind of thing. Yeah. Well, that's always the case, isn't it? <laughs> I think Henry James kind of does this. He puts Americans in, like, European yeah. settings. Yeah. Right? To see, like, the, the, difference in, the difference in, yeah... In <laughs> class and manner and personality and means and all of that stuff to see how it plays out. I really liked um, Allison Elliott yeah. as uh, Millie. Millie, I lost yeah. the name for a moment. <laughs> She's so good, though. She's yeah, yeah. so... I don't know, luminous. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, she's supposed to be a dying woman, but she on screen, she's such a giving, loving, carefree, alive person. Yeah. And so it's she really lights up the screen, and you understand, like, I mean, to jump ahead a little bit, Merton sort of really does kind of fall in love with her. Yeah. Right? This is the thing they didn't count on. Well, interestingly, I don't think he was able to fully love her until she was gone or almost gone. Maybe. You know. But he can't do this out of some strange, like, calculation in order to secure something. Yeah. But she's such a special person that he does love her. Like, they both love her. Yeah, they do. So, it's the original Henry James Thruple. Yes. Well, and, you know, I even think that Millie, you know, even though they lie to Millie, Millie's fully aware, even before she's told by Lord Mark, you know, and I think, so that's the kind of, that's the despicable thing that Kate does, is that she tells Lord Mark about. Well, because she has second, she has second. uh, Yeah, she doesn't want to lose Merton. She feels that she's losing him. She's afraid to lose him. So she sabotages the thing that she set in motion by telling Lord Mark about it. And he goes and tells Millie what they're doing. But the thing Kate knew, I mean, like she knew before, like she, she knew that she was off with Burton the night that they left her alone during Millie the masquerade. Knew that Kate yeah, was off yeah, with sorry. Burton. Yeah. Um, like, well, here's and the thing. I think she was like completely open to that. She was fine with that, you know. But like, you can't say that, I guess. <laughs> One of the best scenes in the film comes towards the end. It's probably the last scene between Millie and Merton mm-hmm. where he's trying to say, no, you know, we didn't do this is. Yeah. He basically tries to deny all of this. Yeah. But she just looks at him. Yeah. And then he looks back at her and everything is communicated mm-hmm. silently. And he admit, I mean, it's admitted in, in the gaze. Yeah. That you're right. You're you. Yes, this is what we've been, this is what's going on. Well, it's interesting, like, if you think about Kate's, not Kate's costumes, uh, Millie's costumes throughout the thing, she wears, like, early in the film, she she sort of wears white as, like, a, a sense that she's innocent or not aware of what's going on. I don't think but, she is innocent and not no, aware of what's going on. but in on. the last scene, like, she kind of serves, like, the white is more, like, angelic, more of a... 
like she's in a position to forgive rather than, you know, sort of yeah. a, a holy... I mean, she's also on the brink of death, so there's that aspect of it too. But, you know, the sort of sense that she... I mean, and there's even sort of like a scene where he's like kneeling on the floor and she like, you know, touches his head and it's a very sort of like, you know... Like a painting from, yeah. you know, Renaissance painting of, you know... Of a saint a, or something. Of forgiveness, or, yeah, yeah, or someone touching someone's head or something like that. So, um, I think in Venice there's a lot more sort of... Um, more more nods to Renaissance painting. How could I have forgotten this movie was set in Venice? So yeah. much of it. Like, a good half of the film yeah. is in Venice. So, this is... You know, we got to call this out as a pandemic COVID-19 travel film that yeah. you need to see <laughs> because Venice looks amazing. Yeah. You, you really feel like you're going somewhere in this film. I mean, yes, you have both rides on the canal and stuff like that, but um, yeah, it really transports you to another place to, yeah. to go to Venice. It's, well, I mean, even, uh, you know, even London, like the, the, the rich scenes that they have at the parties and everything mm-hmm. like that. I mean, there's a scene and I need to figure out where it is. This like beautiful jewel box of a room. It just makes me want to go places yeah. again. <laughs> has this beautiful like peacock blue tiling. And then the ceiling has this like ornate sort of, um, you know, Asian inspired decoration, you know, I'll go to like, that crumbling tube station. Yeah. Even. I just, can we go somewhere? Well, and like in that stage, like there was this, like obsession with you know the east and china and japan and so all of that influence was in the fashion in i mean like things things were looser there were more kimono-esque there were a lot of references to like peacocks from india and you know so there was this whole obsession with asia that was coming into the culture and people forget how much like well like because we don't study it. We all study it through like this Western lens, but like how much Asia influenced us starting, you know, I mean, starting back in Marco Polo, but, you know, like as more and more like connection with Asia, you know, with, with India and with China and with Japan, we pulled in all these influences into this Western culture and it made it so much richer and more interesting than it would have been if it was just, you know continue to be Europeanness, you so, know. <laughs> so is that why they've pushed this ahead eight or ten years? I think so. So that they can have an aesthetic that feels more modern and is that this exciting, strange yeah. period? Because what would you get if it were set in 1902, like when the novel, or maybe even earlier, the well, novel's written in... The 1890s is still, the novel's written still 1902. Victorian, right? Yeah, you would feel more of it. You wouldn't have. So this, this is sort like of, the first, first like post-Victorian sort of. And you said Art Nouveau too, and I don't know what sort of dates that usually is. Well, but I mean, like in Paris, this would have been about the time you know the the iconic sort of metro, the, the station, metro stations, stations, and sort of turn of the century when. But like, if you do this a few years earlier, you don't get to do that with no, your no. aesthetic. Yeah. Yeah. So I like that they did that. <laughs> Just push it ahead eight or ten years. You know, it reminds me, there is this amazing room, which is in the Museum of Asian Art in Washington. So it's a whole room. I don't room. think I've been to there. It's amazing. It's an amazing museum. Is it a Smithsonian? Or? Yeah, it's a Smithsonian Institute uh, Museum of Asian Art. And it's, I mean, like, everything there is beautiful. But they have taken this room. It was like a dining room. Um, but they took the whole room from this place where it was and brought it into the museum. So it has um, sort of this like teal or jade green walls with golden peacocks painted on the panels. Mm-hmm. And then um, it has this built-in shelving with this beautiful um, Chinese blue and white pottery, like set nestled in the little shelves along the wall and this... It's it's incredible. It's like it's one of like our 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 dining room downstairs is painted that color because of that room. That's <laughs> I didn't <laughs> that's know how that. influential that room is to me. And it, it has a bunch of I believe Whistler paintings in it as okay. well. So it's decorated with these gorgeous antique Chinese blue and white vases and and vessels and then Whistler paintings and it's it's absolutely beautiful. But it, it feels like something that's out of this this world and. Um, it was my first, you know, before I fell hard and deep for mid-century modern, as I have. 
um, the sort of Art Nouveau, arts and crafts, Art Deco sort of thing was my first sort of aesthetic obsession. Um, I didn't you know, know what we were getting into when you wanted yeah. to show this movie. <laughs> so, you know, and somewhat in, uh, probably heavily influenced by this particular film, like, you know. Um. <laughs> yeah. So talk to me about Helena Bonham Carter. Oh, I love her. She's, I don't know, she's just just such a, a wonderful little, you know, fey creature. <laughs> She is sort of, yeah. Yeah, you know, she. I mean, like, she could be Morgana Le Fay, you know. I'm surprised she hasn't played her, or did she? I don't know. So I've probably given her short shrift or something. Like, <laughs> I used to really, really love Helena Bonham Carter. And in my head, I want to say something catty. Like, I loved it when she used to play people. Yeah. And I haven't really kept up with her career, but I do know that at some point she took the path of, like, Harry Potter movies and Tim Burton films and kind of played more and more sort of odd fantasy sort of caricature kind of things (laughs) and less like humans that I could identify with. She's so good. And I, I, I liked the era. Like this is probably one of the best films she's ever done. Mm -hmm. Like this is still known as like one of the great Helena Bonham Carter films. But I also feel like, sadly, it's probably almost around where I dropped off and stopped. I think seeing I think you're right. Films. Yeah, and I, I'm I'm sure she's done excellent work in other things. But I tuned out at some point, and maybe I should look at some yeah. some of the stuff she's done. Well, I think she's such a great actress, but I think she's I mean she's so striking looking. She has that dark hair and that pale skin and that sort of creepy look about her which like it's easy for people to put in their mind that she plays this kind of character and maybe she likes that kind of character i know from watching her on fashion blogs that she does well she, she has does, an aesthetic like, like, like that dan levy she yeah. she wears black and she likes granny boots and yeah. you know she likes to be she's got she, that goth grandma thing yeah, going exactly on. she loves that sort of thing and like but she's such a good actress like you see, like, what's going on in her brain on her face. And not everybody can do that, you know. Like, you could watch... I mean, like, you just watch her face and you know what's happening. In, and it's amazing. And not... Like, I said, not this, everybody can do that. I think the screenplay <laughs> would have had to be rewritten for actors that weren't as good as Helena yeah. Bonham Carter, Linus Roach, and um, Allison Elliott. Because... Yeah. There's so much that isn't said, yes. but that we get and that they communicate to each other because none of this, none of the machinations of what's actually going on, this sort of scheme yeah. is ever actually really said. Yeah. It's just implied with little fragments and bits that well, are suggestive, yeah. but that every, they all know what's going on and it's all in the, the haunted overly long look yeah. and, and the, the, the suggestion made. So great screenplay, but these actors really make this happen. I don't think it would work with lesser actors. Well, it's interesting, too, because I don't think the acting is subtle. You know, there are subtle actors, Mm -hmm. you know, that like... And if you put a subtle actor in a role that requires, you know... More emotion More emotion. It's like, you know, you put... I mean, I guess the big example would be Kristen Stewart, who is a fantastic actress, but she's very subtle. And they put her in Twilight, which does not require a subtle actor. It needs something that, you know... And then people say she doesn't do anything. Yeah, which is not true. She's a fantastic actress in other things. It just was not a good role for her. I don't know. I feel like Helena Bonham Carter, if she'd been... It's like, you know, you watch... um, those films that talk about the transition from silent acting into into spoken word acting. Are you and saying like, she would have been a silent actor? She would have actress? been a silent actor because she can act with her whole body, her whole face. Those you know? eyes, those yeah. eyes, those magnificent <laughs> haunted eyes. Yeah, and you know, some some actors are benefiting. They can be more subtle if you can express things through your voice, and you know, you it allows you to be more more subtle. I don't know. I don't know if that's the other thing that I compare it to is um, 
there were several adaptations of Oscar Wilde, um, sort of in the 90s. Um, I'm not all that familiar with those. I don't think I've even seen them. My all. favorite one is An Ideal Husband with Rupert Everett and Kate Blanchett. I and, think we watched it once and I fell asleep. And um, there's also a Reese Witherspoon one of The Importance of Being Earnest that I don't like as much. That didn't sound like a but good idea to me, so I didn't watch it. It's that. funny because it's the same sort of machination sort of thing, but Oscar Wilde is just so talky. Everything is like shared out loud and, you know, it's funny and over the top. Well, Ernest is so silly. Yeah, yeah. Well, Ideal Husband is also silly. I don't know it as well. (laughs) Um, But it's also similarly around the same time, I think quite a little bit earlier. But um, um, those those are two of my favorite British period pieces. Well, maybe we need to look at an Ideal Husband again. Yeah, I think so. Because I feel like I've gone down this road with you, kind of exploring some of these things that are so dear to you. Like we've done Pride and Prejudice on Mm. this show, the one with Colin Firth, the the TV (laughs) adaptation. And um, like, so if I really like this movie and I like some of those Jane Austen adaptations, are you holding anything else back that we still haven't watched that I need to see? Uh, I mean, like an ideal husband would be one trying to think if there's any others i mean that that i watched regularly you know we pretty much hit the most of the ones that i i think that i watched I know in a regular and sensibility basis. emma thompson's version is uh I, yeah i i mean like that i put on any time like it's a rainy day <laughs> yeah. i just put on sense and sensibility it's you just quote it like, all the time when uh, yeah. it, whenever it rains on us yeah. you do the line about the rain <laughs> it's not going to rain <laughs> you, you always, always say, say that. that and then it always does yeah <laughs> Um, but yeah, I, I kind of got away from it. I mean, there's so much interesting things going on with modern film and, and, and stories being told. So you told haven't that been are, hiding in your little cocoon of cozy, no. uh, British uh, film adaptations? Although every once in a while we'll get like a really great period piece. What is the French one that we saw that was so amazing in the spring, um, about the... Jean de Florette? No, no, no. Or... The new one. Um... I need more than that. We saw something in the spring that was French. Yeah, it was on. Um, it was on Portrait, Portrait of a Lady, of a Lady, on, Lady fire. on Fire. Yeah. Oh yeah. Amazing. It's a shame we didn't cover that <laughs> on this show. But we talked about doing an episode yeah, yeah. on that one. But that, you know, it's just every once in a while there's like an amazing period piece that does something interesting and and. Babette's Feast was another one that we saw. Oh, so good. Although, you know, that one, like, it felt sort of timeless, you know, in that sort of... Almost like a fable. Stark way. Uh I mean, Portrait of a Lady on Fire is kind of stark in that way as well. You know, there's not much... You know, not compared to this where there's just so much richness and color and texture and, and everything like that. Like, by comparison, Portrait of a Lady, the only sort of, like, you know, big textural object is that green dress... Is mm-hmm. it a green dress? I think yeah, it's so. a green dress. Yeah. I can see it even on the cover yeah. of the DVD. <laughs> um, but yeah, I I don't know. It seems like people are have moved away from doing as many sort of like over the top, you know, There's, period. This is not an era of dramas. lots of period films. No, no, you know, I can't think of other than Portrait of a Lady on Fire, the last one that we the saw. The Yorgos Lanthimos, uh, Lanthimos um, one. Oh, that was good. With that. Uh, all the names have left my head. I can't uh, think of the name of the film. Olivia Coleman. Olivia Coleman, yes. And um... <laughs> you all know what we're talking about. This is not good. This means I'm getting older because I used to be able to pull out Emma any Stone. title. Yes, I used to be able to pull out any title anytime, and I'm losing that ability. Yeah. And um, Bino- not Binoche. What's her name? Rachel Weiss. Weiss, yes. Love and Friendship was pretty good, too. Yeah. That lesser, lesser, unfinished Le- lesser Jane, Jane Austen. Austen. That was fun. <laughs> I mean, I don't, we haven't seen it again since then. But I don't know. I just, something about, you know, I'm not a very jealous person in, in, in my life at all. I mean, like, I just am not, but I'm like, I really enjoy that sort of portrayal of like feeling that sort of intense intense feelings um i i really dig it maybe you live more intensely by seeing films of people yeah experiencing that yeah it's that whole cathartic understand like you know that sort of ravenous 
feeling of like wanting to like feeling like somebody else is your possession and and like nobody else can have them and you know that's I don't know it's I think another reason why I like teen dramas so much is that there's like this list sort of like everything's awash with emotion and drama and I love everything that everything for teens is like amped up yeah so yeah like <laughs> it's the end of the world everything is so at 11 yeah. with them all the time and it's really just he says she says stuff yeah yeah <laughs> but teen teen shows are great yeah so that's that's i mean like i feel like a lot of the early novels are kind of like that as well that they tend to be you know this sort of like soft spoken less powerful emotions high uh literature stuff i feel like that that's a more recent thing as far as novels go i think that novels used to be a lot more you know you mean things are more understated now yeah, in things, like your average literary novel yeah like it's if like, you read a lahiri huh, novel nothing you really know, happened you, you know, know they had a moment of awkwardness <laughs> while they were in a taxi cab and i'm sorry that ruined the next five years of their life yeah this this guy spent his whole life being upset and not saying anything about the fact that he didn't like his name or whatever you know yeah. <laughs> and letting yeah. it letting it slowly well, destroy him the, you know over years literature is so much uh, now about internal conflict only yeah. and nothing gets expressed in the real world but if you look at some of these great novels yeah. freaking i just finished brothers karamaza yeah. i mean this is this is like murder and brothers <laughs> like you know well that's it's, it's all life and death it's yeah. all high high heightened emotion and uh and melodramatic too yeah. and psychologically so well, I think dense the, and violent the best novels these days are the ones that like take that drama that internal drama and find some way for it to boil over into into so like i always think of um i like so many of um uh in his name escapes me you have to give me more than that saturday Ian McEwan, the Ian McEwen, yeah. I mean, like so many Amsterdam, of his, like there's Atonement, so much, there's Saturday. so much great internal conflict going on in the characters, and then like something happens out in the real yeah, world, because and his things are about like they boil over repression that boils over. <laughs> yeah, like all of them are like that. Yeah. Well, and yeah, yeah. So I, I mean, like I still, you know, it's good stuff. It's good stuff. Yeah. That cat wants to chime in on this, but we're not going to let her. She's not a regular uh, co-host. <laughs> so do you have any other thoughts on Wings of the Dove for our, for me, for our audience, I or for our cat? I think that's it. I think so, too. We had a good chat about this, we didn't did. we? Yeah, it was good. All right. Well, that means, of course, that it's my turn next time. Yes. And I know there was a runner-up from last time, and I can't remember what it was, but it might be a comedy. Yeah. I don't often choose comedies. Well, so maybe we'll go that route for a change. And we'll be back with you in about two weeks. Thanks for listening. Look us up on Facebook. Shut up and watch this. Email us at shutupwatchthis at gmail.com. Find us on Instagram. Tell your friends about the show. Find us on Apple Podcasts. And uh, leave us a star rating or a review. <laughs> yes, but if they leave reviews or ratings on, on Apple, Apple Podcasts, Podcasts, it helps other people find us. It boosts us a little bit. Um, But we're on Spotify. I think most of our listens now are coming from Spotify. So, hey, Spotify people. Um, I'm one of you. Uh, We are Legion. (laughs) Uh, We'll say goodbye and see you next time. Goodbye. Bye.